Well, this time I'd like to invite the children who are heading back to Children's Church to feel free to head back and join Miss Susan in the back there, who will be your teacher for Children's Church. Uh, age 3 to 5, 3 to kindergarten, feel free to head on back. I'd love to see kids hugging each other, rejoicing at the opportunity to go to Children's Church. That's an awesome thing. As they head back there, I invite you to turn to 1 Peter, the book of 1 Peter, chapter 5. 1 Peter is towards the end of your Bibles, after Hebrews. Hebrews, James, 1 Peter. We're going to be in chapter 5 as we actually finish out our sermon series on 1 Peter this morning. We did verses 12 through 14 as part of the introduction several months ago, so this is the end of it this morning. We're going to be in 1 Peter 5. We're actually going to start kind of halfway through verse 5, and then we'll end in verse 11. I invite you, if you are willing and able to stand with me as we read from God's Word. I'm reading from ESV. Translation. Which says, 1 Peter 5, 5-11. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. Well, our Father, as we finish this series, this going through First Peter, and as we begin end the, the study of this book, I pray that you would confirm its message in our hearts and minds. That in a world of trouble and trial... There's a faithful Savior, and we can find ourselves at peace with with hope in him. Help us, Lord, to walk the same way Jesus walked, to follow in his footsteps even when those footsteps lead to the cross, knowing that glory awaits after. Teach us this morning, we pray. Amen. What does it take to finish well? Have you ever seen videos of marathon runners who collapse right at the end, like right close to the finish line? You could go on YouTube, you can actually find a few of them, of marathon runners who hit the wall 
just a little bit before the finish line. Some of them actually crawl across the finish line. It's just a biological, physiological thing where basically your gas tank runs out. I don't know if it's glycogen or whatever. No more energy is there. And what runners have, who have hit the wall describe it, how they describe it is, I wouldn't know this because I've never run that long. I hit the wall way earlier. Um, but according to what they say, it's all of a sudden as if your legs are cement, and just to take a step is just impossible. So you can, if you're morbid and you like schadenfreude and kind of taking joy in other people's sufferings, you can go on YouTube and watch runners hit the wall. I'm just reminded of that as I was thinking about what does it take to finish well. We're in a season of endings right now, right? We're ending the year in the month of December. A lot of you are ending school. I see college students back. Your semesters have ended. And maybe you hit the wall at the end. I don't know. I hope you're recovering and resting well. We're also at the ending of 1 Peter. We're getting Peter's concluding thoughts in his book to the church. And Peter is thinking about the end. Uh, You may have noticed this theme as Peter wraps up his book. He's looking a lot to heaven. And in fact, he's writing to his church and to the church about really how to live in the end times. Maybe you've heard that phrase before, the, 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 end, times are, the end times are coming and there are signs of the end times coming and you know, be, care, be watchful for the end times. Biblically speaking, we've been living in the end times ever since Jesus Christ arose from the dead and ascended. Scripture refers to this whole period from Christ's ascension until his return. Scripture speaks of those days, that time period, as the last days. We've been living in the last days ever since Jesus ascended. So listen to what Hebrews 1 1 and 2 says. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So Hebrews author there is talking about God speaking in the Old Testament through prophets. He says, but now, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. According to the author of Hebrews, we are living in these last days in which God has communicated to us through the revelation of Jesus Christ. So if you read the New Testament authors, they'll say, yeah, there are you know, concluding days coming, but really we are living in the last days now. We are living in the final age before the return of Christ. And Peter wants to give wisdom for us as to how we are going to live in these last days before Jesus returns. How are we going to finish well? How are we going to finish well in times of trouble and trial? Because according to Scripture, again, these last days are not going to be easy days. They're days filled with trials, sufferings, persecution, and challenges for the church. How are we going to finish well? How are we going to stand firm in the last days? Look down in your Bibles at verse 12. Verse 12 in 1 Peter 5. Peter says he's written all of this. He says, all this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. All that he has written, all that Peter has communicated, he's saying this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. That is Peter's desire for the church, that you would stand firm in the grace of God. So how do we do it? How can we stand firm under the pressures of the last days? That's our big question this morning. If you want to write that down, you can. If not, that's fine too. 
But our big question is, how can we stand firm under the pressures of the last days? That's Peter's goal in this section, is to give some concluding words to the church on how they can stand firm under the pressures of the last days. How would you answer that question, by the way? If you had to think of a few things, a few keys to standing firm under the pressures of the last days, when the pressure is weighing, when it feels like the gas tank's on empty, when we're facing trials and challenges in the world, knowing the Christ is coming soon, what are the keys that you would think of? Or how we're going to stand firm? Peter has three. I think in this text, there are three things that Peter's going to bring up, generally speaking. The first key that Peter gives us is in verses 5 through 7. The first key to standing firm under the pressure of the last days is simply be humble. That's Peter's call to the church. Be humble under God. That's how I'd say it. Be humble under God. That's his call to the church, and that's his key for how we're going to stand firm under the pressures of this world. Be humble under God. Look at the second half of verse 5 through verse 7. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. If you are here last week, you know Peter was talking to the elders of the church, he was talking to the younger people, now he's talking to everybody. All of you, the whole church, here are my concluding thoughts, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. Put on the clothes of humility. And when Peter gives that command, I can think of one thing immediately. Where do we see somebody putting on humble clothes? In John 13, Jesus lays aside his outer cloak, wraps himself with a towel, the clothing of a servant, and washes his disciples' feet clothing himself with humility. How would you define humility? Somebody asks you, well, what does humility mean? What does it mean to be humble? If you had to give a quick answer, well, what answer would you give? I'm not sure there's a better definition of humility than what Paul gives us in Philippians 2. You're familiar with this passage. Philippians 2, 3 and 4, Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or, dis- or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I think that's just about the best definition of humility you're going to get. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Look to the interests of others. Count others more significant than yourselves. That is the attitude that Peter wants for the church. And of course, we go back to the example of Jesus. Is there anyone more humble than the Son of God? Where would we be if the Son were not humble? If the Son were proud, arrogant, self-centered? If the Son of God were not humble, he would have never left heaven. He would have never 
left the glory of heaven to be born a human. And that's what we celebrate this Christmas season, the humility of the Son of God, born as a human. If you were proud, you never would have lived as a human subject to his own creation. If the Son of God were proud and self-centered, he never would have gone to the cross, never would have suffered a humiliating death for others. If the Son of God were proud, he never would have been crucified for our sins. We would be left without a Savior, without salvation, if Jesus Christ the Son were not humble. He is the ultimate example of humility. And if we are going to be his people, we have to walk in his ways. Our Savior is humble. Our God is humble. So Peter says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Why does God oppose the proud? Well, the proud oppose him. Those who are proud are convinced they can do it all on their own. They don't need others. Self-centered, self-focused, I can take it all on myself. I don't need anybody else. And that person sets themselves up as God, sets themselves up as most important. I've got it all figured out. I don't need anybody else. That person thinks they are God. So they have already opposed God. You can't be a Christian and be proud. Those are two opposing things. A Christian, by definition, is one who humbles himself, humbles herself under God. How do we do that? How do we humble ourselves? Paul says one way to do that, one definition of humbling ourselves, is to consider the needs of others, consider others more significant than ourselves. So let me ask you, how do you need to do that? This is an invitation for you right now to think about how you might be more like Jesus Christ and consider the needs of others more significant than your own. So if you're fighting with somebody, are you fighting because you're proud and unwilling to humble yourself? Do you have strain in your family? Because you are unwilling to humble yourself? Where are you being selfish? Where are you being self-focused, self-centered, proud, stubborn? One of the very core uh, commitments of the Christian life is that we would humble ourselves consider others. Here's another way we humble ourselves. We humble ourselves by giving our worries to God. Look back at 1 Peter 5. Look at these verses. There's a link here. There's a connection that I want you to make that's really important and I think insightful. Look at what Peter says. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, Casting all your anxieties on him. That's the link I want you to make here. Look at the logic of what Peter is saying. Casting all your anxieties on him 
follows the command, humble yourself. Casting all your anxieties on him describes how we humble ourselves. Are you beginning to see the connection here? There is a connection between anxiety and worry and pride and not being willing to give your trouble to God. Let's unpack this connection for a moment. Think about this. Peter says, here's how you humble yourself. Here's how I want you to humble yourself. Here's how it looks like. Casting all your anxieties and worries upon God. Because what happens when you are not casting your anxieties and worries on God? What are you doing with them? You're taking them on yourself because you think you can handle it. Because you think you've got it figured out. And usually when we're riddled with anxiety and worry, what are we worried about? We're worried about ourselves. Generally speaking, very often, a person who's anxious and worrisome is not somebody who's considering about the needs of others, but somebody who's focused on all their own troubles and worries and anxieties. And Peter is saying, turn your eyes elsewhere, look to God, cast all your anxieties and worries upon him. Because what happens when you do that? When you start to take all your anxieties and all your worries that we all have, and you place them at the feet of the cross, what are you doing? You're looking outside of yourself now, and you're looking to God, and you're starting to pray, you're starting to trust in him. You're reading scripture saying, how can I bring this to God? What you're doing is worshiping. And now you're placing your worship off of yourself, thinking that you can handle everything. And you know, I cannot handle everything. I'm not God. I'm not big enough to handle all this anxiety and work. I'm going to place this on God because he is. And now you're recognizing there is somebody else I need to take my worries and anxieties to who can handle this, who is God and I'm not. I'm going to worship him. And as soon as you start worshiping, you're no longer proud no longer making a God out of yourself, but praising him. I don't think there's a coincidence that in our day we have decreased worship and increased anxiety. In our day of self-affirmation, in our day of self-esteem, in our day of pride, we are also seeing increased anxiety and worry. It's because we have forgotten how, broadly speaking, to cast our anxieties and worries on God and worship Him and trust Him. We are not built or made to handle all of our own anxieties and worries nor are we built or made to be worshipped. We are built to worship God and cast our anxieties and worries upon him. And it always goes bad when we don't do that. Isn't that the story of the Old Testament? What happened to Israel over and over again? They got nervous about the powerful nations around them. And very often... Instead of trusting God, God help us, they said, how can we handle this in our own strength, in our own might? Who can we make allegiances with that will save us looking to the power of people instead of the power of God? This is the story of the Old Testament of Israel over and over again, and it always increased their troubles. The church has not been exempt from this kind of mistake either. So I was reading one commentary that brought up uh, something I wasn't really familiar with, something called the Camisard Rebellion. That happened in France in the 1600s. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. C-A-M-I-S-A-R-D. You can look it up. 
the Camisard Rebellion. What it was, was the French Protestants under King Louis XIV were basically made illegal. It, it was made illegal, essentially, to worship as a Protestant. Decree was made that disallowed Protestant worship in France in the 1600s. So what did those Protestants do? Well, they were forced outside the city and they worshipped in the fields and the mountains privately, secretly. And in the beginning, the pastors and leaders of the Protestant churches that were worshipping and hiding would preach through First Peter and call the church to suffer well, faithfully, gently, and not retaliate but to trust God in the midst of their praise. But over time, the persecution kept going and going. Um, the soldiers, the men of King Louis XIV, hunted down pastors, arrested them, removed them. And as those faithful pastors were removed, faithful leaders were removed, new leaders came in. And they said, no, instead of faithfully, submissively, quietly being persecuted, we need to retaliate and fight back. Instead of placing our worries upon God, no, let's take this in our own hands. Let's rebel, fight back. And then you had a rebellion of Protestants now waging war against the Catholics. They adopted guerrilla warfare tactics, started assassinating priests, burning down villages, and now the Protestant churches were just as guilty of all the warfare and bloodshed and violence that their oppressors were. Instead of trusting God, faithfully walking out the sufferings of Jesus Christ, they took up arms, shed blood, killed innocent people, and lost their witness for Christ. As what happens, instead of worshiping the Lord, trusting our cares and worries with him, we take things into our own hands. We lose faithfulness to the Lord. There is a worry of mine, I'll use that maybe flippantly, because here we're called to lay our worries down, but a worry of mine for the church in our day. Under the pressures, under the challenges of our modern life, a culture that opposes us at times, that we'll forget what we're supposed to do with our worry and anxiety. To worship and follow Jesus Christ and instead forget his ways and follow down the ways of the world. I am praying that we not lose our witness. Speaking of the church, I guess I'll speak to you as individuals. What are your current worries and anxieties? What right now, this morning, this week, what worry and anxiety weighs on you? Maybe there's none, and that's a wonderful place to be. But if you're like me, I find it funny. I struggled with worry and anxiety more this week than I can remember in a long time, and I think, ah, this is why I'm preaching this passage. God ordained this. It's what happens when you start looking through passages of the Bible. You start thinking, praying about them, and all of a sudden God uses that, and it's annoying. <laughs> but I don't think it's by accident. In the last few days, I struggled with worry and anxiety more than I can remember in a long time. Worried about things, worried about health, worried about family, and whatever it may be. 
What are you worrying about? What anxiety do you have? How do you humble yourself? Lay it down at the foot of the cross. Trusting that God will care for you. That he loves you. That he wants your good. Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's relational. Maybe it's health. Maybe it's loneliness. Children. Spiritual well-being. Whatever your warrior anxiety is. Peter is inviting you. Calling you. Summoning you. Worship God. Bring your cares to him. The promise, he cares for you. And if you humble yourself, he will exalt you in the end. That's the first key to standing firm under the pressures of the last days. First, be humble under God. Second, be vigilant. Be vigilant in faith. First, be humble. Second, be vigilant. Be vigilant in your faith, knowing who your God is and resisting the one who opposes you. Look at verse 8 with me, verses 8 and 9. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by by your brotherhood throughout the world. I often find myself telling my kids to be careful. It's one of those dad phrases I just say a lot, almost kind of without thinking, be careful, be careful. You you see them playing around, jumping on things, jumping off of things, potentially jumping on littler kids. You know, be careful, there's a baby there. It's the same thing that my parents would tell me when I was making drives from their house after college, you know, long drives late at night. My parents would tell me, be careful, be careful. And they're like, I know how to drive. Now I understand the, the paranoia of a parent with kids. I get it. My parents would tell me, be careful when driving. Why would they tell me to be careful? Why would I tell my kids to be careful? Well, because there's the real threat of danger. Because something could go wrong. There's something you need to watch out for. So here, Peter's telling the church, be careful. Be watchful, be alert, be sober-minded, be vigilant. Why? Because there's a real danger. There's an actual spiritual threat. There's a very real threat in this world. Scripture calls him the devil. The Greek word diabolos. Scripture also calls him Satan, the slander, the accuser of the people of God. This is not just an imaginary being. This is someone, or a person, or a force, an entity of the devil and all his... So called minions, are real threats to Christians. So Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Because the goal of Satan all the way through Scripture and all the way through history is to take Christians away, take believers away, or potential believers away from God. That is the goal. That is his ambition from the beginning. We see it from Genesis to Revelation. In Genesis 3, to take the children of God away from God. Don't believe him. You can eat that. It'll be just fine. All the way to Revelation 12, where you see, read of a dragon that wants to eat a child being born who would be the ruler of the world. 
there's Matthew 13, 19, the parable of the sower. Jesus tells us that some seeds of the gospel are plucked away from the enemy before they take root. This is what Satan wants to do and what he has done from the beginning. I don't know if he can experience joy. I doubt that he can, but if he could experience joy, he would take joy in this. Taking God's children away from him. Causing God's people pain. How does the devil attack? He uses the discouragement of persecution. That's what Peter's talking about here. I had a a professor who talked about how Satan opposes the people of God and what he does, and he summed it up this way, and I think this is actually really helpful. He said, Satan works through three basic tactics. Temptation, accusation, and deception. Those are the three things that Satan does. Temptation, accusation, deception. You can remember it as Tad. Or Dat. You could reverse it. But those things often work together. And often, Satan uses those things in tandem. Think about how the sequence goes. Temptation. This looks really good. This will be really enjoyable. It's worth it. That person really does need to hear an earful. You should yell at them. Send that email. Then, in concert with that, deception. God wouldn't be mad at that. God's okay with it. God would not judge you. In fact, you're justified in this. Here's how you're right. And then you send the email. Then, accusation. You idiot. How could you be so foolish? You're a sinner. Do you think God would really love somebody like you? Do you think God would forgive somebody like you? You are so terrible for doing such sinful things. That's how the enemy works. Temptation, deception, accusation. Those are all throughout Scripture and I think in the present life. So how do we fight against it? Scripture pictures Satan here, the devil, like a roaring lion prowling. In nature, we see ways that animals ward off predators. I've learned there's a term for this, anti-predator adaptation. I might quibble with the word adaptation, but the concept is anti-predator devices. What do animals use to fight against predators? Zebras. Their stripes, it seems, are helpful for that. They don't blend into nature, but they blend in with the herd. And it's really hard to pick off one when you're blended in with the herd. And they cause confusion for a predator, potentially. Chameleons, obvious one. How do chameleons ward off predators? Changing color, camouflage. I learned this, maybe some of you knew this. White-tailed deer can drop their heart rate exceedingly low from about 155 to 38 beats per minute so they appear as though dead. 
so no predator will be interested, and they can go into a state of basically uh, comatose, uh, comatose state. One of my favorites in nature is the Texas horned lizard. Shoots blood out of its eyes. Fight against predators. I love that. That's awesome. What is the Christian's anti-predator adaptation? How do we oppose, resist the evil one? Peter says it simply. Resist him firm in your faith. Here's how you oppose the evil one. Be firm in faith. Know what you believe. Be solidified in the faith handed down to you. Know the gospel of Jesus Christ. Build yourself up in your faith, knowing that you have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ, that the Son of God was born a man, and as a man and as God, He died on the cross, shed His blood for your sins, so you are washed clean, because God loves you. And he has made you into a new person, a new creation. And that if you have been made new, if you've been washed clean, if you've been forgiven by God, then you're no longer condemned. You are no longer accused. You are no longer a sinner. You are one who is a saint, who is holy. And as holy, you have been called to eternal life in Jesus Christ. And God has heaven waiting for you. This is our faith and our belief that God has saved us in the Son, Jesus Christ. So we need to be firm, solidified in that belief because that is how we stand against the enemy. It's matters of faith that are how we stand. Go back to the famous passage. What's the famous passage in Scripture on standing against the enemy? Some of you know it. Where we have armor of God. Ephesians 6, right? Ephesians 6. Those are spiritual things that Paul calls us to. He's telling us the same thing that Peter is. Stand firm in your faith. He just uses more words. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the readiness of the gospel of peace on your feet, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. All these things are faith, spirit things. You could say that Paul is calling us to immerse ourselves in the Spirit-inspired Bible, training in the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing salvation, faith, and righteousness in Christ. Know these things you will resist the enemy. So why do we week in and week out build ourselves up in the gospel? Because this is how we stand firm against the lies of the evil one. And I want to note, he's the enemy. Do you remember what Paul says to the Ephesians before he goes on and talks about the armor of God? What does Paul tell the Ephesians? Who is our enemy? Our fight is not against flesh and blood but against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Our enemy ultimately is not other people. Other people are not the devil. The devil's the devil. It's him and his forces we oppose. So what does that mean? It means we don't spend all our time fighting people. We don't spend all of our time and energy in and out of the church trying to conquer those who we see as our enemies. Paul doesn't call us to put on the breastplate of 
fighting with people on Facebook. Take up the shield of being mad at the world. It's not how we fight. It's not how we stand. We don't oppose the devil by trying to argue with everything we might deem demonic. And trying to go through this world fighting and raging and angry and mad and retaliatory. It's not what Peter calls us to. Peter calls us, stand firm in your faith. Know who you believe in. Be grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's how you resist the enemy. And know that you're not alone. The suffering you experience, eh, it's what everybody in the church experiences. That's what your brotherhood around the world is experiencing. Certain families have certain trademarks. You might have a a nose that is distinct to your family. Your family might have certain ears. That's our family ear. You might have a temperament. He's a Halverson. He's kind of like that. What's one of the trademarks of being part of the family of Christ? Uh, You're going to suffer. You might be persecuted. It just kind of goes with being part of the family. It's one of the family trademarks, Peter says. It's what we experience around the world. So how do we stand in it? How do we finish well? Lastly, verses 10 and 11, be assured of heaven. First, he calls us to be humble. Second, be vigilant. Be vigilant in faith. And lastly, third, be assured of heaven. Be assured of heaven. Verse 10. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. A couple weeks ago when I was in the hospital with my wife after pregnancy and she had had a couple complications and had to take some medication that was not making her feel very well. It was kind of a rough couple of days. The doctor said one thing that was really, really helpful in the midst of that. And we trusted him. He's a doctor. He knows what he's talking about. And he said something helpful. He said, trust me, this will be over soon. Encouraging words to hear from your doctor. I know it's hard now. I know it's not a lot of fun now, but trust me, this will be over soon. That's what Peter is saying to the church here in verses 10 through 11. Hey, this is hard now. Trust me, it'll be over soon. Notice the contrast in verse 10. Look at the contrast here. The contrast between suffering and glory. How long will suffering last? A little while. How long is glory? It's eternal. Suffering for a little while, but eternal glory. 
Martin Luther, in his writings, kind of developed what was known as a theology of glory and a theology of the cross. And he was talking about how we live in this life and what our expectations are of what our life is going to be like. And he said that many had developed a theology of glory, and he used that disparagingly, meaning that many had developed a theology of glory without we are going to experience glory in this life, and we're going to experience success. And if we just follow God, then everything's going to work out well, and we will experience ease, and we'll have success in all that we do, and God will bless it, and we'll have glory in this life. And Martin Luther called that a theology of glory. I think it's probably what was behind the church growth movement of the last few decades. A theology of glory. Hey, just do it right. It'll all work, baby. Everything will grow and you'll have success because God wants to bless you on this earth. Martin Luther called it a theology of glory. And what Martin Luther would say is we need to develop and have a theology of the cross. We need to be theologians of the cross. And theologians of the cross understand that God is strong in weakness. And that God wins victory through death and suffering. And that God triumphs through humility. And that his son was born in a manger. If we're theologians of the cross, we'll understand that there will be suffering in this life, that we will experience the cross, that that is the path of the Christian. That yes, there is glory later, but that's later. We will experience glory someday, but that's someday. But first, what we must expect is suffering in the cross. Or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So we look ahead. We look forward, we look to heaven, we know that glory is coming. There will be glory for eternity, but not yet. And first comes the cross. First comes suffering. And man, this is the message of First Peter. If you haven't picked it up by now, I don't know how to say it more plainly. Peter is saying, you're going to suffer for a bit. Church, you're going to suffer for a while. There will be persecution for a while. But stay firm, stand firm. There is heaven later and it is assured to you. Why is it assured? Why do we know it can ha- will happen? Because God himself will do it. Uh, I've been receiving some pastoral coaching recently. And some of you say amen. Uh, but this is somebody who's just coaching and just get, trying to sharpen my skills a little bit and just get another perspective. And one of the things he's having me do is working on some productivity things, being more efficient. And I'm reading a book called Getting Things Done. Uh, just to be more productive. And in this book, Getting Things Done, one of the things he talks about is a, a workflow of action items. So when you have something that's on your mind, say, oh, i got to do that. What you have to do is kind of develop a workflow of how you're going to accomplish that. So is that something that needs to be done later? <laughs> Write it down, set it aside. Is that something you just need to think about? It's okay to think about it. Or is it something you need to do immediately? And you go through that process. So just trying to filter out in all things you have to do, how do you organize them? How do you organize your thoughts? One of the things to think through, he says in this book, is when you have something to do, ask yourself, is this something I need to do, or is this something that I'm thinking about that actually somebody else needs to do? Especially important for leaders, if you have a lot of responsibility, you can't do everything, so you have to think through, is this something that I need to do, or I need to delegate to somebody else? This is why we have office managers. (laughs) They would just delegate all the... I bring that up because here's one thing. God is not going to delegate to somebody else. He'll send angels to bring good news. He works through people, intermediaries. Peter says, God himself is going to do this. He's going to get his hands dirty, so to speak, in this. He's 
going to be engaged in this. And what is this? God himself, because he cares for you, because he loves you, and is interested in you, that if you are in Christ, if you've humbled yourself before him, and trusted to him, God himself is going to confirm, establish, establish, strengthen you. God will place you in glory forever. Several times this week I was taken to Psalm 4.8. One time because it was a cubbies verse. So, working with my daughter in cubbies. So they're cubbies verse. Another time, because I was talking with Brother Scott, and it happened to be a verse he was meditating on. Psalm 4.8. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. In peace, I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, Make me dwell in safety. That's what First Peter is saying. Christian, you will sleep in peace. God will make you dwell in safety. So Peter says, to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. When Peter says that, he's not praying that dominion might be to God forever, asking. Peter's declaring God has dominion forever and ever. And he can make this happen. Almost done. As I grow... And as I age, hopefully mature, like one of the things you find out is that life is times better than you thought it was going to be, and then other times more disappointing than you thought it was going to be. There are times you're disappointed with yourself, times where things didn't work out the way you wanted, and times when things are harder than you thought they might be. I think all of us, when we're young, we look forward to everything's going to be awesome. Then you grow up and you realize, not everything's awesome. And you look around at all your peers and you say, I can't believe we're the ones running this place. I heard once heard somebody say, adults are a lot stupider than I thought they were going to be. <laughs> That's just sobering. That's just growing up. But part of it also is the school of Christ teaching us we're not in glory yet. So have your expectations set rightly. There's a lot of wonderful things about life in this world because we have a good God who pours out rain on the just and the unjust alike. But this world has fallen. And there's going to be suffering, there's going to be persecution, there's going to be rejection, there's going to be hardships, there's going to be challenges and trials, and they're never going to end until you rest in Jesus Christ. Fully. 
But here's the promise of the gospel and the promise of Peter that the one who has dominion forever and ever, he will place you in glory. There is glory forever later. If you are in Christ. So my final note, look at verse 10. Peter says that God has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Key phrase. All this is true, glorious for us, if we are in Christ. Without Christ and his mercy, all of our anxieties and worries remain with us. We can't take our anxiety and worry to God if there is no cross for us, if there is no Christ, if there is no mediator between us and God. If there is no mediator, if there is no Christ, if we're not in him, then all of our worries are our own, and you better figure out how to handle them. But in Christ, we can take our worries to God. Without faith in Christ and our sure salvation in him, there's no chance to stand against our enemy. If you don't have Christ, then the enemy is stronger than you are. But in Christ, we can stand. Without Christ and our calling in him, then our sufferings in this life are meaningless. They are simply sufferings without any hope of relief. But if we are in Christ, there's glory later. But we have to be in Christ. So my call to you, the end of First Peter, the end of the sermon, the end of this year, be in Christ. Are you in Christ? There is no hope outside of him. If you have any hope of standing, not only in this life and the next, we must be in Jesus Christ. If you don't know what that means, talk to your parents, talk to a friend, talk to a family member, talk to me, talk to somebody else. Our desire for you is that you would know Jesus Christ and stand firm in him, not by your power, but by his, and his work on the cross for you. Would you pray with me? Father, this is a season of anticipation and hope. We anticipate uh, the first arrival of Jesus Christ. And as we close 1 Peter, we are anticipating the return of Jesus Christ. That those of us who are called in him will rest in eternal glory of heaven. And we look forward to that day. Lord, make that hope, that faith real in us. That we might stand firm under pressure. Help us, Lord, to walk the way of Jesus Christ. To be humble to humble ourselves, to cast our worries and anxieties on you. And to stand firm under any opposition, knowing that we stand in our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord. Give us grace. Strengthen, establish, confirm this church and those in it. For your glory, we pray. Amen.